Hey, it's actually Animation Cellurix. Ho ho, crunchy conversations about classic cartooks. <laughs> we gotta move these refrigerators. We gotta move these color TVs. I'm one host, Micah. I'm Matsy, and I was gonna say that's not a cartoon, but then I realized, wait, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Animation Celery, where we give each other cartoons to watch and then come back and synopsism and discuss them. <laughs> Although this time, only I got to choose. Because I chose a movie that I saw on YouTube a clip of and decided that I want to watch the whole thing. And so I made Micah do it, too. And it's called The Twelve Tasks of Asterix. And we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about whatever else we want. And I will give Micah first opportunity to do so. Okay, well, I'm mad. I'm so darn mad. Oh, um, have you seen the trailer for Rescue Rangers? No! Oh gosh, I heard that this was coming, but I didn't see this. Uh, oh boy. Okay. So the premise of this movie is that they are like Hollywood performers that were once big stars when Rescue Rangers was on television. But now it's 30 years later and the uh, bloom is off the rose. Um, um. So maybe something is going to happen to them that gets them back together. Uh, um, hmm. yeah, this is what you wanted out of a Rescue Rangers uh, movie, right? This is like, this is like how the reboot of DuckTales handled Darkwing Duck. Yeah. Oh, that, okay, well, there, there there's, part of me thinks, okay, they, they, they're reminiscing about how hot they were in the 90s. Uh-huh. And they're like at a dance club with Roger Rabbit. <laughs> so, so part of me thinks that this is could actually be in the same continuity as Roger Rabbit. He's just outlived Eddie and everybody. Well, sure. Yeah. Um, and that would make sense that they're tuned performers in that case. But still, this is not what you want out of Rescue Rangers movie, right? No, this is. I'm struggling here. Yeah, because it's is like, this is like one of those like cartoons, cartoon movies in the 90s. Where it's like, like this, where it's like, instead of a redo of the original story, it's like, oh, you, you used to be a big deal. Like, well, yeah. I mean, I'm just rehashing what you said, but. That- it's, like, it's like the new Muppets movie. <laughs> Except well, they were performers to begin with, right? Yeah, I mean, so, I liked that Muppets movie. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Like, okay, so, um, you know, maybe the trailer doesn't tell the whole story, but it's not showing me anything good. Um, mm. Okay, f- first of all, uh, the voices of Chip and Dale. Chip is voiced by John Mulaney, and mm-hmm. Dale, I think, is voiced by Andy Samberg. <laughs> all right. Which, you know, they sound like themselves. Um, yeah. And I find it all the more ironic that they would, you know... In in their trade, they would make fun of this kind of soulless effort, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yet here they are, and J.K. Simmons is in the credits, too, and uh, Seth Rogen plays a CG dwarf. Also, the trailer, mm. the trailer features several jokes about CG, also what you think of when you think of Chip and Dale movie, right? 
<sighs> so like they go to a neighborhood and then Seth Rogen's character is all a uh, commentary about the age where CG characters were the uncanny valley. Oh, also, Man. also, I mean, they're both CG, but uh, Chip is CG in a way as to resemble the original show. Whereas okay. Dale is fully textured and he comes with the uh, the uh, in-trailer gag. Um, what? You know I had CG surgery. That's mm. gross. Yeah. The Like, I'm just stuck on... <laughs> the whole time you're talking, I'm kind of listening, but I'm also thinking maybe J.K. Simmons is Fat Cat. Oh. <laughs> uh, he's Fat Cat, but he talks like this, huh? Um, I don't know. That's so, This all sounds gross. It, well, yeah. That's why I'm mad. Because I'm, you know, we've established that I have an ambivalency towards this show, but at least don't make something terrible. Like, these people could have just stayed home and opted to make nothing. Now, we haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's actually entertaining. But this is just like, <laughs> like, at least they tried to do something with Eight Crazy Nights, whereas this just seems like a... <laughs> this oh, just, boy. This seems like a default, like a, a to, scared to be sincere, right? And all these people are of an age where they might have watched, like, you know, Seth Rogen and Mulaney. And all that. They might have watched the show, and this is how they want to participate in it. Anyway, um, some other notable things in the trailer. Uh, we see Scrooge McDuck, uh, like, splashing around in some coins. Okay. I guess it's probably just a cameo. But then again, there's all kinds of cartoon characters. There's, like, the three little Disney pigs mm-hmm, are on the mm-hmm. dance floor with Roger Rabbit and... Um, and we do get to see her, but she's barely in any with the trailer and we don't get to hear her speak gadget. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I don't. Mm-hmm. That's the other one I was wondering about. Do they go with Tress McNeil? Do they get yeah. some other barely famous woman or do they get a black lady to give her some sass? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe Kristen Wiig. I, I, <laughs> boy, I don't know. Kristen Shawl. Oh, well, you know, she would actually probably be okay as Gadget. Do you want me to just type real quick and see if I can figure it out? Okay. And I'll be ready to be uh, mad about it. Oh, oh, yes. the movie also stars the uh, Lonely Island. Or as uh, oh. <laughs> as Norm MacDonald once referred to them, Andy Samberg and the other guys. <laughs> It seems like there are a number of characters or uh, actors here who are listed, but don't. Well, I see Tress McNeil. Oh, OK. Um, but there, it seems like there's a number of actors here like Kiki Lane, um, who doesn't have like some of these characters like, or these actors don't have a character associated with them. Right. Like Will Arnett. Huh. J.K. Simmons. Eric Bana is Monterey Jack. Huh. You know what would be actually would actually be sort of funny to address their weird voices mm-hmm. is to show that back in the day, John Mulaney and Andy Samberg talked real slow and then they sped it up. <laughs> that would actually be a little cute, but yeah. Hmm. But hmm. Uh, they they go on some kind of mission, right? They they show like uh, special ops running with guns and stuff, which also doesn't really speak, say, uh, rescue rangers to me. Yeah. I think more like a bazooka. (laughs) Yeah. Or suction cups or whatever. Cannonballs. Yeah. 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 
I mean, I, I don't get it. <laughs> no, this seems wild. This seems incredibly poor for a Disney movie. This is like what they did with the Smurfs. Yeah. This is like, this is like, I mean, a, a friend of ours, I rem- do you remember that weird um, uh, Masters of the Universe movie? Yes. And where where He-Man and friends all went into like, Earth? <laughs> in 84 Los Angeles or whatever it was. And oh, was, was it New Jersey? And then Kentucky Fried Chicken? I, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. And I I never knew what to make of it until a friend of ours kind of just offhand said, oh, yeah, the, let's put him on Earth because we don't have a budget to make Eternia. And I suddenly went, oh, that's why they did it. Because it's cheap. Yeah. And that's why Gwildor instead of Orko, because he doesn't float. But... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, people actually have yeah. a nostalgia for that thing now. That ma- mm. And I don't know, I just think it's all bad. People say like, oh, well, they they were doing an homage to Jack Kirby's uh, various like New Gods kind of series. And I tend to think like, mm. uh, <laughs> well, that's great. Maybe they should have made a Masters of the Universe movie. Yeah, which I think they are doing now. Yeah, Centineo's out. Uh, I can't mm. remember the guy they have in instead. But he's... There was a wrestler named Triple H who was at one time rumored to be playing He-Man. And I thought, huh, maybe. But then he shaved his head. I just put a wig on him. (laughs) (laughs) Just put a funny wig on him. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, so. Yeah. That's brutal news. Yeah. And I got more disappointment. I'm 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 Debbie Downer this week. Um, Yeah. So uh, we watched a movie called Bell, as in like an attractive lady, Bell. Okay. Now is this Disney's Bell? No. Okay. Uh, it's uh, Mamoru Hosoda, who oh, okay. directed Wolf Children, and this oh. is this is his new movie, Bell. Um, oh. Hmm. Yeah. And it, and you say disappointment? Yes. Um, it builds on prior themes. So this one. Uh, takes place on a uh, internet social hub called you. And there's like 5 billion users on this thing. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> out of the 7 billion people on earth. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sheesh. Everywhere um, but China. Well, m- maybe this is the slight future. Um, mm. uh, at any rate, the, uh, uh, the main character, Suzu, a high school girl, uh, has a low self-image and has trouble expressing herself uh, ever since uh, the death of her heroic mother, um, mm. which also is really a thing in anime these days, it seems. Like, yeah. do any main characters have both parents? Hmm. Even one parent sometimes, at any rate. Um, so... She finds that when she goes on to this network, it's, oh, by the way, I should say that it's not one of the ways this is sort of the future. Uh, It's an immersive experience. And it builds your avatar based on your biometrics. So Hmm. when she goes there, she turns into like a a sexy singing starlet. (laughs) Um, And she becomes a big hit on this thing. Uh, however, there's, there's a, uh, a renegade user named Ryu, who's a, uh, who like fights in the arena and is, is being hunted by 
the law enforcement on there for being overly violent. Mm. Um, but she forms a connection with them. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this. Part of it is a mystery about who Ryu actually is. Right. Um, and another part of it is a straight homage to Beauty and the Beast. Hmm. Um, seriously, like he lives in a castle and there's enchanted roses and uh, they have a ballroom dance. It goes a little bit more supernatural. They fly and stuff. But right. even his animation evokes the beast. And it makes more sense. I, I read today in an interview with uh, Hosoda where he said that Beauty and the Beast was like a landmark achievement uh, in animation for him. That he mm -hmm. was thinking of getting out of the business until he saw Beauty and the Beast and it rekindled his, his love of it. Um, yeah, I, I remember I had a conversation with my sister once and I said, if you were going to go back to like 1920 or something and the birth of the motion picture, mm. what movie would you show people to blow their minds? And mm. the thing to keep in mind is it would have to be something. It, it couldn't be something that's too much in the modern day because there are things like, you know, a telephone or a television that they just wouldn't understand. So it would have mm. to be something kind of timeless. And my pick was Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Sure. Her pick was Avatar. <laughs> you know, funny thing about movies now, the one thing that isn't timeless is right. the amount that uh, people text or tweet or whatever. And mm. it just appears as, as words on the screen. Yeah. That's just yeah. Uh, something we understand now that would baffle people <laughs> if you took it back That's in time. True. Yeah, I was thinking about the idea of a ringing telephone and picking it up and how you know, oh, that's right. kind of like that's becoming, you know, we still understand it. But for how much longer? How long until that's just obsolete technology that only shows up in the movies, you know? Actually, um, you know, uh, at uh, transit stations, they'll have emergency phones and they're the, yeah. the, the classic phone receiver. Right. There, this was uh, last year, a, a child pointed at that and asked her mother, what's that? And I said, that's a phone. And she said, that's a phone. <laughs> so we're already there. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, so Bell, it's um, it's kind of muddled. Like there's there's only so much time in a movie. So you have to be tight on things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing they do really well is establish. um the real world and the sense that it's like alive and people are doing things. But I think they do it to the detriment of the rest of the movie. Like that the, uh, the you social network is kind of superficial. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't really ask questions about, uh, like the role of virtual relationships or escapism. Hmm. Um, so it ends up just being kind of a shallow experience. And then there's a point late in the movie where it takes a real turn. It has a um, it introduces a sober, real life danger. Hmm. Yeah. And then it kind of goes only surface level on that, which some people would probably rightfully find offensive. Um, hmm. So. I don't think this is like uh, the director laid an egg or anything. Like, I think it's there's still stuff to enjoy in it, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not up to 
uh, his past movies. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you said Wolf Children is like your favorite movie, period. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't seen uh, Mirai, his one before this, but I have um, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Summer mm. Wars. Um, what else? Anyway, they're – oh, Boy and the Beast. Those mm. are all really good movies. But hmm. yeah, sort of a bummer. Well, darn. Yeah. Well, how about you, Matsy? Be the ray of sunshine. No. <laughs> um. Okay, so the thing that's been kind of hanging over my head the last few weeks is this hit monkey. Okay. Um. We it was suggested <laughs> or it was mentioned on Twitter by Moss Lion, and anything yeah. that's mentioned on Twitter we have to watch. Yeah, it's the rule. Yeah. Uh, you watched some of it. Yeah. I, the first week, couldn't find it. The second week, found it but didn't watch it. So now <laughs> it's the third week. Yeah. And I'm, let's, let's put a pin in Hitmonkey for a second. Okay. Let's just set it aside for just a moment. Um, the fourth season of Disenchantment. <laughs> okay. Uh, so as we mentioned previously, this uh, Disenchantment is the current series well i guess the simpsons is also current but the mm. the third and current series from matt Groening, uh the creator of the simpsons and fujirama this is his new show which is a medieval fantasy comedy have you watched this by the way micah i've seen episodes of it okay um let me give you a little background the first episode of disenchantment i thought was pretty bad <laughs> okay i I watched it and went, ooh, I don't know about this. But I was just invested in, or I was curious enough to try the second episode. Mm-hmm. And it got a lot better. And then I went through the rest of the season. Each season is 10 episodes. So I went through the rest of the first season and went, okay, yeah, this is all right. I can dig this. I think I watched it a couple times, actually. And then the second season, it was kind of that thing that I've said before where it's like, the first one, you've never seen anything like it. The second one, you've seen something exactly like it. Right. It was it was that. It was like, okay, this is more disenchantment, which is still engaging, just not quite as good. The third season, I started to kind of lose interest a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm noticing a, a, a decline from season to season. And mm. so now we head into the fourth season. Um, okay, let me get a brief idea for anyone who doesn't really know what Disenchantment is. It's the adventures of, it's set in a magical kingdom called Dreamland, and it centers around the um, tomboy young woman princess, uh, Tia Beanie, better known as Bean. She is not interested in royal life. You know the kind of princess this is where she's just, you know, she wears like a shirt and pants and boots and she just wants to go drinking and not interested in royal life. Um, Her dad, King Zog, is interested in royal life from the perspective of the luxury that it affords him where he can just be lazy and fawned over. John DiMaggio, right? John DiMaggio in what I feel is his best role. Okay. Uh, the other main characters are Lucy, who is a little demon, and he is he. It's like Lucifer. Yeah. Um, he is bound to Bean. Like his job is to bring out the worst in Bean, like push her worst instincts and make her 
be just a terrible person. But what actually happens is that he becomes a better, like, demon, I guess. Okay. And then there's Elfo, the suspiciously named elf who has Mm. left the secret conclave or enclave of Elfwood just searching for adventure and meaning in life because elves just happily make candy. These are like these aren't like Tolkien elves. They're like little Santa elves, like little Mm. little colorful dudes with and girls with like curly shoes and pointy hats who just sing songs and make candy all day. And Elfo's not interested in that, and so he's gone out looking for new meaning in his life. And typically, a season will, it's, you know, it's episodic, but it has a through line in the story that builds to some kind of um, dangerous conclusion that ends in a cliffhanger where everything is in the balance. Hmm. And then it gets resolved within the first three episodes of the next season, so it can go back to its status quo, but slowly build up to another crescendo And that's the way that these seasons have gone thus far. All right. Season four really lost me. Oh, season four. There was a point in the fifth episode where I actually paused it and paced around for a little bit, considering whether I wanted to bother watching the rest of the season. Hmm. It... It had multiple se- well, not just that episode, but like the series to that point or the episode, the, the season, right? The season to that point had had multiple instances of that, you know, that quote unquote joke that family guy sometimes uses where two characters will have this rambling conversation where they talk over each other and say nothing of value for minutes on end. Right. And that's supposed to be funny. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. There's like Elfo and Lucy talking through moving the crane in a crane game. Mm. Um, there's one where they're on stage to roast Zog, but they're both talking about how it's their set and like trying to get started, but the other keeps cutting them off and it's going nowhere. And I'm sitting here thinking, what reaction did the writers expect an audience to have? Because I can't imagine how anybody would find this funny or interesting. It, well, it's kind it, of done to death, like if by this point, so... But even, even if you I, did, I'm watching this like what, like how, what did they expect to happen? Did they expect mm. someone to laugh at this? Did they expect someone to find it interesting? Just having them, no, oh, move it diagonally. It doesn't go diagonally. It only was left and right. Okay, I'm going to go down. Oh, no, move it. You just move it diagonally. No, into the center. Move. Shut up. This is mm. useless. Hmm. The story, I'm kind of starting to get annoyed with the villain because... Yep. There is a primary villain who comes in late in the first season. And it's sort of in the first episode of this season, she at some point says like, oh, I've planned out every aspect of your life down to the place settings or whatever. And I'm thinking, oh, so this is going to be the thing where every time the heroes get the better of the villain, the villain's going to be like, aha, but it was my plan to let you beat me. Oh, yeah. It's so dumb. Ugh. It's Um, funny. Young Justice. Mm. <laughs> Every episode is like that. I like the yeah. show, but the, the endings are pretty stupid like that. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's a point where like 
Bean's in trouble and oh no, oh no, oh no. And then haha, she quick thinks and gets away and she runs. And then the villain is watching her run and smiles. And I'm like, ah, oh, this was your plan too, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, my favorite one of those ever mm. uh, was in Gargoyles. <laughs> so I never liked Xanatos. He's like one of those mastermind characters mm. you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a fight between two factions in a lab and the fight uh, caused a collision with an aquarium that then spilled out some electric eels that <laughs> shocked a scientist and apparently killed him. Right. But it was it was a fake death you find out at the end. He's like Xanatos is gloating and the scientist walks in. Huh. So they set that up. <laughs> These two <laughs> two flying enemies were going to fight and hit an aquarium and he was going to pretend to be like, maybe he was just going to improvise and it was just like <laughs> mm. Yeah. It was the silliest thing. That that's pretty silly. I mean, hmm. <laughs> nothing in disenchantment has hit that level yet. Yeah. Um maybe it would be better if it did cuz it's silly. I don't know. I think. Oh, another thing that bugs me about Disenchantment is the title sequence for each episode. Mm. It has a custom title sequence for each episode, which is little like low detail still images of everything that's going to happen in the episode you're about to watch. Okay. So it's spoilers. Sure. There was I think it was the I think it was the first episode of the second season I'm watching these credits and it gets to the end and there's like this tower with the prince. Um, Bean has a half brother named Derek. And and it gets to the end and you see Derek in this tower. And then I watch the episode and it and it gets to the end. And and they're like his parents, uh, Zog and his second wife, Una, are like talking about stuff. And they're like, ah, we're fine, whatever. And then they suddenly go, Derek. And then it goes to the tower and shows Derek and like. Like, they've just realized that Derek is still around. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I know, because you showed me that in the title sequence. And I was expecting them like. How does a show have spoilers for the entire episode in the opening credits? Well, it's supposed to hook you to make you keep watching. Right. But I don't know if when you're streaming, people flip channels, so to speak, as much. Yeah, But I don't know. It used to happen, right? Like, didn't the A-Team go like that, too, where they'd show, like, the vehicle flip and stuff? Well, not like the that. entire episode, like, right down oh, yeah. to how it ends. But yeah, I guess. I, I, and and there's just stuff that goes on, like, a lot of wasted time. Like, it felt like, I remember there was a sequence where Bean was drowning. This is the fourth season I'm talking about. Yeah. And she's underwater, and she's pounding on a window, and she stops, and and there's this extended scene of her lifeless body floating in the water. It was probably not that long, but it sure felt long because I'm Bean has Bean met a mermaid in season three. Mm-hmm. And so I'm watching this and like, there's a mermaid in the stained glass window and she's underwater. And the trailer for this season showed that mermaid come back. So I'm sitting here looking at my watch Looking at the sequence where she's supposedly drowned, thinking any time now that mermaid can burst through the stained glass mermaid and save her. I guess you hate and that kind of thing. Like, like some I hate people wasted time. Oh, OK. I say 
so you didn't mind knowing that it would happen, but well, you well, were having fun. That's the thing. The, well, the thing is, the mermaid is one of the few good things in Bean's life. Mm. And I kind of want her to come back. Like, well, uh, I wanted her to come back, let's say. And like, you know what? The the mermaid was interesting. The mermaid made Bean happy. The mermaid made me happy. I want to see the mermaid come back. And this is obviously where she's going to come back. But mm. because they had 20 minutes of material, but a 25 minute episode, we have to look at Bean's body floating around for a little longer before that mermaid comes. Hmm. So, yeah, um, disenchantment has kind of gotten worse with every season. It seems like it's living up to the promise of the pilot episode and the title. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you ever ever see that Simpsons episode where uh, Marge cramps Bart's style on an MMO? Oh, um, I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. It felt to me like disenchantment, like. That was the uh, proof of concept, I guess, that a hmm. Matt Groening style show could work like that. I'm sure it could. There was yeah. the first season had some gags that I really liked. There was one like it had this. Um, they were on a quest and it did that kind of montage sequence where it's showing a map. And then like in a ghostly image over it, you're seeing them go through like a desert and through a rins, a rainstorm and like a blizzard and all that kind of thing. And then you see on the map that they've just gone through, like, the Valley of Many Weathers. Yeah, like, that's that's a good joke. Or yeah. um, or uh, they come to a cave and it's called the Cave of the Single Trap. Mm. And they're like, I'll go in. Chunk. Ah! Okay, I think it's safe. Like, that's funny stuff. Um, I get maybe this is just sort of a bad version of Adventure Time then, kind of. You know what? That might be it, that Adventure Time just did this way, way, way better. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm I'm not exactly looking forward to the fifth season. I'll I'll probably watch it. (laughs) You don't have to watch them if you're not having fun. I I, maybe they'll I don't know. So Hmm. now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's move back to Hitmonkey. Okay. Uh, I watched some of the first episode started with. Uh, some thugs being gunned down in a really uninteresting way by mm. a secretive figure that was clearly the monkey because the show's called Hit Monkey. Yeah. Then it went to a hitman who will not stop talking about nothing the same way that the characters in Disenchantment did that made me almost turn it off. Uh, channeling Archer. Is it better or worse that he's monologuing? Uh, worse. I think because he's like I kind of said there, he's doing his best Archer. Including looks (laughs) kind of. Yeah. Um, You you mentioned comparing the animation to Archer. Yeah. You're not too wrong. I think it's a step above Archer, but only one step. Right. Um, And then when it got to the second sequence of him, so he's like talking to the guy in Tokyo, like the, the customs guy at the Tokyo airport non-stop and then he's talking non-stop to the limo driver and then the limo driver stops and he continues talking to this limo driver mm-hmm. and at that point I like I have watched enough cartoons of people saying nothing for now and I turned it off after 10 minutes not Whoa. even 10 minutes actually so I well, tried the mon- 
The mm-hmm. macaque doesn't talk. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he's far more enjoyable. Well, maybe it's just because I had been disappointed by disenchantment enough already that I was like, I cannot watch more of a character droning on endlessly about nothing. So, you know, it's also a kind of thing about that show is that uh, <laughs> I said that I kind of don't like the hokiness of Japan in there. Mm. I don't know what it is. Like maybe certain actors become like the face and voice of a whole country. Oh, you know what I mean? I think I know what you're about to talk about. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I think he's dead, but you know, Mako, the, uh, the guy from uh, Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> oh, well, and Conan the Barbarian too, for that matter. Mm. You know, you know, he talks like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so just kind of like, and he, not only do other people would talk like him, but he would be cast in everything. Right. Mm. And so everybody's like that. Like, they, they made sure to cast like all Asian Americans in, in the various roles. I mean, yeah. good, I, good, I guess, but they're still talking like that, except for well, Olivia Munn, who's, you know, I guess not like that. But Well, I saw George Takei's name in the credits at the opening. Yeah. I was like, hmm. I I was interested. I like George Takei. What's yeah. not to like? Um, I'm not, but I think, uh, hmm? I'm not sure who he is. Maybe he's the general. I can't remember. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, well, it's it, it, it's lost to you forever now. I think I don't think you'll be revisiting Hit Monkey. Yeah, sorry, Moss Lion, but I am not interested in Hit Monkey. Boy, I needed some good cartoons after that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Asterix. Mm. Um, now, for anybody who doesn't know what Asterix is, let me give you a little primer real quick. Asterix is a comic book series that uh, it's actually quite venerable. Um, Mm -hmm. It first appeared in a French magazine, French comic magazine called Pilot uh, in 1959 written by René Gossini and illustrated by Albert I think it's Alberto actually Uderzo. Uh, And it has been immensely popular and indeed continues to the present day, even through the deaths of both original uh, creators. The most recent uh, Asterix book actually came out in October of 2021. So it is still alive and well and very, very popular. Mm. The premise of it, it is set in the year 50 BC in Gaul, which is to say France. At this time, Julius Caesar is expanding the Roman Empire all over Europe. And he has conquered almost all of Gaul except for one village, which is a holdout because they have the secret of gummy berry juice, which is to say a magic potion created by the druid Getafix, who which um, makes its drinker gives them superhuman strength and speed and powers. Well, not powers. Strength and speed, basically. Those are powers. Yeah. I just don't want people to think that they have, like, freeze rays or anything. Mm. So everybody in the village basically has the ability to become super strong, and so they are able to hold off the Roman invaders uh, in perpetuity. The, their, their best warrior, due to his cleverness, because, you know, strength isn't an option, or strength isn't a factor. Everybody's the same strength. Mm. Um, but their best warrior is Asterix, who's... Just a little guy, 
but, you know, he's clever. And he has a companion, a rotund fellow named Obelix, who he fell into a vat of the potion when he was a baby. And as such, he has been granted the magic potions abilities permanently. So he has constant superhuman strength, which he uses to make and transport standing stones called Menhir. Uh, which <laughs> when I first saw Asterix, it was way back in like the early 90s, I want to say. Oh, and I didn't understand what these rocks were at all. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I mean, they're, they're basically like Stonehenge standing yeah, stones. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're Stonehenges. Yeah, they're pieces of Stonehenge. So, yeah, basically the comic is just the adventures of Asterix and Obelix. Asterisk, an asterisk, as hmm. you know, is a punctuation symbol, a little star, often used to denote a footnote. Something I didn't know is that an obelisk, in addition to being a standing structure, is also another punctuation uh, thing. It's a it's a little cross that is often used to denote footnotes when an asterisk has already been used. So an asterisk is the star and an obelisk is the second banana. Cute. That's pretty good. Yep. And there's various other characters that have names that all end in X, or at least the male ones do. And they're puns, which are tremendous. I, I had a very good time reading the um, the names of the characters in the Asterix series. Uh, you know, what's funny mm. is that uh, uh, you ever have a look at the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide? Oh, the first one. Um, I might have seen it somewhere. Talk about footnotes. D&D books in general, but especially that one. Had tons of asterisks and uh, and obelisks, <laughs> so it would have like asterisk and then double asterisk and then triple asterisk and then an obelisk, right? Yeah. So yeah. because of that, that was the way I wrote. So like my school assignments would have oh. things that I thought of late, and they'd be like double asterisk, triple <laughs> asterisk, and so on. That's pretty funny. <laughs> That's yeah, amusing. pretty wacky. Yeah. Your greatest literary influence was the Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Hmm. Anyway, um, Asterisk is, I don't know about North America so much, but much like soccer, incredibly popular everywhere else, translated hmm. into all sorts of languages. There have been multiple adaptations of it in all sorts of media. However, until relatively recently, there was only one movie that was made as a movie for from from whole cloth and not an adaptation of an existing Asterix volume. And that movie was The Twelve Tasks of Asterix, which Micah will now tell you about. Right. So this movie is from 1976, just a little before both of us were born. Hmm. Um, it begins with a parody of the MGM logo that sees the little dog... Uh, dogmatics in place of the traditional lion. Then a musical overture and narration takes us back to 50 BC in the northern woods of France, or Gaul, as it was known. As Mansi said, Julius Caesar and the Romans had conquered all of Gaul except for that one village, and we are introduced to the chieftain and the village bard, and then more importantly, to Obelix, the uh, strong menier deliveryman, and Asterix, the craftiest warrior. Then, perhaps even more significantly, we get to see Getafix, 
the druid who brews the magic strength potions that have kept the village free of Roman rule. Speaking of which, all the villagers, empowered by potions save Obelix who got permanent strength, they crash through the palisades to get to the Centurion legions. Yeah, they it's find a it one- fun. Yeah, oh yeah. That's that's why they have such good nature is they're not in any danger ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's a one-sided route. And the opinion from those centurions gets all the way back to Caesar that these Gauls are unconquerable because they must be gods. The emperor then visits the village in order to put forth a challenge, overcome 12 challenges to parallel the labors of Hercules. If they beat them all, Caesar shall surrender. But if they prove less than godly, the Gauls must surrender. Mm. Asterix and Obelix, the heroic duo, are selected to take on the tasks. They're led by Caius Titulus, uh, Caesar's servant. Their first task is to beat Roman racer Asbestos <laughs> in a foot race. Yeah. Um, I guess in the same way that all the uh, male Gauls are Ixes, all the Romans are Uses. Yeah, sure. So Asterix takes a lax approach to the start of the race versus the focused athlete. And with a sip of magic potion, Asterix is able to pass asbestos repeatedly, as well as detour to pick up mushrooms and flowers. And ultimately, the genial Gaul helps the wheezing racer across the finish line second. <laughs> I like... There's a. I like the animation cycle of asbestos running. Oh yeah, his, ver- his various like pinwheeling legs. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he, he's got ultra long legs. I like his uh, determined expression. Yeah. And when he kicks it in high gear, that he shatters the background. It's kind of. Fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Um, so their second task is to throw a javelin farther than their <laughs> the asymmetrically muscular. Versus the Persian. Hmm. The throw from his one beefy arm crosses the Atlantic Ocean and <laughs> riles up North American natives. But Obelix's casual throw circles the earth and forces Verses to hustle around the globe to stay one step ahead of the javelin's point. <laughs> what do you think of the depiction of the Indians in this? Oh, goofy. Yeah. I mean, there's... Well, okay... Here's the thing about Asterix. Everybody's goofy, <laughs> um, but some of them will make you more uncomfortable than others. Yeah. Yeah. I think this might be a French thing. Like, I was thinking about the way black people are portrayed, and then I was thinking about uh, the, the tragedy of Charlie Hebdo, mm. the, the mm. uh, satirical magazine that got shot up because they portrayed um, Muhammad. Yeah. I actually... Once thought like I, I Googled for it and it's just out there. Anyone can see it. So, yeah, I, I guess their their volley remain like the damage they did is 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 done. <laughs> There's no reversing it now. But I think uh, yeah. maybe the French are a little more freewheeling about this kind of stuff. Well, also, it was 1976. I mean, this is this is not long after the Blue Racer and the Japanese Beetle. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh the 2012 Asterix movie, black people still look like that. So, hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, their next uh, opponent is Cylindric, the German, and the task is wrestling. And by his attire and ability to toss obelisks around, it's clear that the small German is adept at judo. 
Mm. However, his uh, Achilles heel is his willingness to be a good teacher because when Asterix takes a turn, the friendly Rhinelander is too happy to teach the wing-helmeted Gaul how to use judo against him and win. The uh, challenge is ramped up when Asterix and Obelix need to cross a lake dotted by the Isle of Pleasure. (laughs) The siren call of sexy priestesses lures them there. Frolicking with the beauties through paradise seems too alluring to leave. Their dancing is to samba music, accentuated by the local fauna. Birds chirp and peck, eggs shake like maracas. And for me, the pièce de résistance is the squirrel that plays the clarinet. (laughs) It seems like we watch a lot of these things where there's like a musical number and animals improvising stuff that cracks me up. Hmm. (laughs) Like the... uh, what was it? The uh, the anteater and the uh, bottles and cats don't dance. Oh, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, squirrel with a clarinet. It's pretty funny. He's even <laughs> got like a little a little stand for his sheet music. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, so the, they might be seduced, but luckily Obelix's sticking point is the lack of wild boars to eat on this island. So off he and his buddy go. Next, they are presented the Temple of Iris, the Egyptian magician. Asterix must overcome his hypnotic gaze, and he does so by inane questions about the hypnotist's glowing eyes. (laughs) And then doublespeak convinces the Egyptian to compel himself into acting like a wild boar rather than Asterix. It's it's like, you know, you want a chicken kind of hypnotism. Yeah, yeah. The sixth task is to eat the practically endless food supplied by Belgian chef Manakenpix. <laughs> we uh, <laughs> we don't even need to guess how this one's overcome. Yeah. Obelix uh, and his rotund body are perfectly suited to handle the mountains of food served in the restaurant, and he easily consumes all that is brought to him. Yeah, and it's all, like, <laughs> I like that the, the feast is all manner of animals, of increasing... Right increasingly exotic and gigantic nature like a camel two cows um i think it ends with an elephant <laughs> yeah an elephant and olives yeah yeah yep 12 egg omelet yep i'm getting kind of sick thinking about <laughs> 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 a mountain of caviar <laughs> oh, yeah yeah um so next uh, through a stormy barren landscape caius guides the heroes to the cave of the beast the fearless duo head into the foreboding darkness, and they're unflappable despite the eeriness of a giant skeletal hand, undead bats, ominous monster faces, a skull volleyed back and forth by ghostly tennis rackets, <laughs> and a subway train. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. The, the exit of the cave puts them up through a paving stone in a Roman city. There... Everyone in the streets acts like a lunatic because they've all been to the place that sends you mad. By the way, this is the clip that I saw on YouTube that made me want to watch this movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah, this what, sequence. Just, just, just the, the madness of the streets. This this task. Oh, the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's the exact building, the place that sends you mad. That's the building that Asterix and Obelix must go to to obtain a permit for their next task. 
the impediments of bureaucracy send them up and down stairs and down hallways, constantly redirected from one office to a desk to an office. Um, Asterix beats the system by bluffing the unhelpful clerks into having to go through the whole process of going here and there until they all go mad and the Gaul gets out with his permit. <laughs> My understanding, like, I, I looked at the Wikipedia article for this movie, and mm -hmm. as I understand it, um, the idea of permit A38 has kind of become just a slang term in German culture for um, endless bureaucracy. Oh, that's got an extra layer then. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, no, like, I don't mean like that's like they used that as the inspiration for this movie. I mean, this movie no. inspired that term. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so ninth of their tasks is crossing a gorge on an invisible thread over a stream of crocodiles. They, they try it out, but at, at some point they just play to their literal strengths. And with some potion for Asterix, they beat the challenge just by falling in and hurling all the crocodiles up, hung over the tightrope. This seems like a good place to mention that there's a small thing that I wouldn't call it a pet peeve, but it's something that I do notice when mm -hmm. characters have a limited supply of a beverage and okay. whenever they drink it, they drink a whole bunch. And, uh. and I want to go like, oh, you should conserve that stuff. You don't have a lot. And then they never do run out. But it's just a huge swig in this movie. In this yeah. movie, whenever Asterix drinks that potion, it's just a little gulp. Oh, so this is this is the opposite. This of your is him beef. doing it right. I'm applauding Asterix for conserving his potion. He doesn't even use it that much in the movie. No. Yeah. So uh, next, the two of them must ascend a mountain to answer the riddle of the old wise man that lives atop it. <laughs> just as just as Wade Duck did so many times when we were watching Garfield and Friends. <laughs> Incidentally, I think the, the old man looks pretty cool. Yeah, he does. So the riddle turns out just to be a cheesy advertisement for an Olympian brand of fabric softener. I, I liked that a lot, actually. I laughed pretty good at this. Yeah. Um, they, they then next, before getting into Rome proper... Um, have to sleep on a battlefield from which arise undead Roman legions. And Obelix at first uh, is flummoxed with his inability to fight the intangible soldiers. But Asterix has none of it and is grouchy because he wants to get a good night's sleep after doing... Uh, 10 tasks to this point i like this is this is a great illustration of how these gauls view the roman army because like all right. this is like trying to tell the roman ghosts like don't wake up asterisk like he he wants to fight them all by himself like it's just a treat that he gets yeah that's hilarious yeah so anyway they they arrive in rome and the final task involves not only Asterix and Obelix, but all the village. They all have to participate in the circus, which is to say the big arena where gladiators fight and lions are sicked on uh, victims and the like. So their final task is the thing that they've been doing all along that is flummox the Romans. Right. 
I guess uh, Caesar hasn't witnessed it firsthand, or he's got lots of confidence in his uh, goons. Mm. But yes, indeed, uh, all of the uh, the villagers managed to make a farce of this event, uh, pummeling the gladiators, uh, <laughs> uh, a kind of putting the animals to task to form a traditional circus. Yeah. Uh, from our perspective. So, you know, like uh, uh, elephants marching in sequence and uh, lions uh, perching up and, you know, st- sitting erect. Yes. Um, Somehow some custard gets thrown and characters get their faces splattered like clowns. And- yes. And, and they become a big hit with the audience. Um, and Caesar, knowing that he's licked, gives up. So, I think this movie doesn't fit anywhere in Asterix's timeline. Not that I think they're precious with their storyline or whatever, but no. the the Romans surrender and the Gauls control Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they let Caesar retire to a villa and live out his days with Cleopatra. And yeah, so they're just celebrating at the end and... Uh, Asterisk lets Obelisk know that anything is possible because it's a cartoon. So he transports himself back to the uh, Isle of Pleasure, but with a uh, roasted pig. <laughs> it's a nice little get. That's a nice little get around. It's like, yeah, we totally changed history, but none of this matters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I guess they always change history. I mean, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not a case where we're looking at it with the lens of history, like. Uh, uh, glumly knowing that <laughs> Asterix and yeah. Obelix eventually get enslaved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that your first exposure to Asterix was in the 90s. I remember seeing these comics all the time as a little kid. And I was trying to piece together, why wasn't I into this? Mm. And I was thinking, well, there must probably like superficial reasons. Like I thought Asterix looked stupid or... I, I just thought comics don't come in this size. The mm. the, the comics are really tall, mm. the Asterix comics. Um, but I think the truth of the matter was, was that in the school libraries and in the public libraries, they were all in French. Mm. It was, you know, ambitious Canadianism thinking that we'd all be <laughs> bilingual. Yeah. Whereas I, I was not fluent, so that's why I didn't get into them. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when, I have, when I have gotten a chance to read some... I have enjoyed it. Like there's this example I cite all the time is one where he goes to Switzerland Mm -hmm. and the Romans are there too. Um, But they have this hedonistic party that they keep, uh, the scene keeps going back to Mm -hmm. where um, they are, they have a fondue pot and whoever loses their bread in the pot is going to get a torture. Oh, so Yes, <laughs> but there's a masochist who keeps intentionally losing his bread. So like, he's like, oops, I lost my bread. And they're all chanting, the whip, the whip, right? And they're, 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 they're carrying him off to get whipped. And then the next time it's like, oh, I just can't keep my bread on my stick. And they're chanting, the stick, the stick. And the last one is like, the sword, the sword. But he gets, they get interrupted. So we don't get to see him get run through or whatever mm-hmm, he wants. But, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> That was pretty funny, I thought. I, well, I don't know that I've seen much of the comics at all. Like, I mm. I kind of remember, I remember seeing the comic and I remember being baffled by the men here. Okay, but yeah. that's kind of about it. Um, mm. 
So this movie was my first deep dive into what is Asterix. And the answer mm. is pretty funny. This is like, yeah. so, so this movie has no stakes because it establishes oh, no. that if they fail at even one task, they lose. So you know that they're going to do at least the first 11. And right. so it's, it's kind of like just a little series of like Looney Tunes shorts or something. I think they're, what this reminds me of is Popeye a little bit, right? Okay. Yeah, sure. Sure. Lots of goofy characters and like classic Popeye would go on adventures, you know, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. I especially thought it, I, I looked a little bit at uh, another movie where they go to Egypt mm. and I thought, yeah, this, I could see this, you know, like Popeye and Wimpy and Olive Oil go to Egypt. Yeah. Okay. Actually, we have seen that, but <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I very seventies, like this oh, yeah. is, you can absolutely see this like right alongside. Well, I mean, not the same audience, but alongside the works of Ralph Bakshi, you know, in terms of okay. like the music and the animation and stuff. Oh, the like music, this. the music. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the sequence where they were going through that cave. Yeah. Like all that kind of psychedelic. Well, not even psychedelic, but like just like these different backgrounds and stuff and weird sounds and things that they're trudging through. Like. You know, this is totally something that would happen to Fritz the Cat. I'll tell you, this movie started out with a lot of impact for me mm-hmm. and then sort of dragged to the finish line. And one of the reasons, I think, was because the earlier parts are freer. Mm-hmm. And I think like, there's kind of like a turning point after they get out of that cave, right? That you get mm. less crazy animation, you know, or... Mm. Uh, Somewhat. I did think yeah. that it kind of... it the end of it was kind of anticlimactic. Like I wasn't really interested in the, the big circus fight. Yeah. Um, but I did appreciate the like non canonical, you know, whatever. None of this matters in the end. I would have kind of liked to have had more supernatural tasks like Hercules, mm-hmm. like seeing a Hydra and that kind of thing. But I don't know how common monsters are in, in Asterix. I mean, they have ghosts in this, the um, just by I mean, it, I wasn't expecting you to mention this, but it mm-hmm. just so happens that I looked at what the most recent I said that the most recent Asterix came out in October of 2021. Yeah, that is called Asterix and the Griffin. Oh, OK. So, well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, there's Roman gods in this movie. So, well, yes. I mean, <laughs> the whole the whole premise starts with a magic potion, too. So, yeah. yeah. I did have to kind of like they're talking about uh, Hercules and Jupiter. And part of me was like, oh, that's not the. Oh, wait, no, you're the Roman Empire. Yeah, it, it is. is the right. Name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I felt like it should have escalated more. Like it starts out right where they're kind of small challenges and mm-hmm. it does kind of build. But I personally didn't really like the uh, place that sends you crazy. Yeah, it was. I kind of, it, it wasn't I kind of felt like a data joke, but a little bit. Yeah. It was more like, I think it wasn't necessarily the the content of that sequence that interested me so much as just like, I thought that the animation was all right and the voice acting, even though it was like, it was better than most French stuff translated into English. I find mm. that usually French to English is one of the worst localization jobs in cartoons. That's weird. Uh, yeah, mm. maybe that's just my opinion. Maybe I haven't seen very much, but like I've there are cartoons that I've watched and just listening to them, I can go, oh, this is originally French, isn't it? Um, mm. 
so yeah, I think it wasn't necessarily the content of it, but just like this actually seems kind of well done and has a weird sense of humor to it. And I'd like to see more of it. Sure. I'll say one thing in the visuals that bugs me a little bit in this movie, especially mm-hmm. the shapely women in the movie look weird. Yeah, they do. They're too tall. They're f- all of them. Their heads are so crazy. Mm. Like they look like they look like they're like their whole heads are pulled back by the scalp, like their entire heads are pulled back into their ponytail. If you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, With yeah. Weird, big lips. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, it's it, it's not unique to this, though. Mm. Like lots of things have that problem, like uh, SWAT cats with the the popular Callie Briggs. She doesn't look like the same species as the SWAT cats, mm-hmm. you know, so this is this is kind of common how to translate you know, a character that's supposed to be an attractive woman to not have too realistic a build, I guess. Yeah, um, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about the localization, including, I guess, the the, the voice actors. Mm. The one I especially liked, I especially liked uh, John Ringham is his name as Caesar. Mm-hmm. He's got a voice that's a lot like John Hurt. Yeah. You know, kind <laughs> of raspy. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the moments that kind of made me go, okay, this movie is going to be pretty funny, is when mm-hmm. there's he's J- Caesar is with his council, and there's this one guy who just keeps playing with a knife. And, yes, that is good. And Caesar says, like, stop playing with that knife, Brutus. You're going to hurt someone. And I thought, yeah. that's funny. And then you hear the thong, ow! And the next shot, his finger is all covered in a bandage. I'm like, yeah. they already had a good joke, and then they did another joke. <laughs> it was good. I kind of like... I like the Romans better than the Gauls, actually. Hmm. I like the Gauls' um, names. Like I said, like they're you didn't yeah. mention the, the chieftain vital statistics. Um, right. I like that he <laughs> something that I sort of like did a slow burn for me. Like, well, it was a joke that was introduced too early for me to get it. Mm-hmm. And then after I saw the rest of the movie, it snuck up on me, which is vital statistics always travels by being carried around on a shield. Like the, yes. he has these two guys who are holding a shield over their heads and he stands on that shield. Even when he's like he's, fencing, he's standing yeah. on that shield and the two guys are doing the footwork for him. It's because he's self-important despite being a total buffoon. And the thing that I liked was when the Romans first show up or when Caesar shows up, mm-hmm. we see vital statistics and he's like, resting his feet in a bucket of hot water like he's had mm. such a hard time on his feet right, all right. day <laughs> <laughs> you know the uh, name of the uh, smithy oh i did see it but i can't remember it now what is it he's fully automatic that's the one fully automatics yes and and his father was semi-automatics <laughs> the the bard is cacophonics yeah, there's a lot of the, these. Like, let me see if I can find the the, this. the, the fishmonger is unhygienics. Yes. Um, and his. The, um, uh, oh, he has a like a, a kid too, like a daughter or something, right? Like, I don't remember the name. Like, of the... I think he has like a daughter named Bacteria or something like that. Right. No, it's his wife, isn't it? I think maybe. Um, and the, the oldest member of the village is geriatrics. Yes. Hmm. OK, let me see here. I got a I got a, a list of characters here. <laughs> uh, Vital Statistics' wife is named Impedimenta. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Cacophonics, uh, Geriatrics, Unhygienics. Uh, yeah, his wife is uh, Bacteria. 
fully automatics. <laughs> a couple of uh, random villagers named monosyllabics and polysyllabics. Hey. The, um, oh, the postman, the, postal districts. Ah, that's cute. The um, Egyptian movie that I was watching part of um, has two architects mm -hmm. named Edifice and Artifice. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, it kind of goes all around. So, yeah, this is all right. I, I, I have watched uh, the 2012 Asterix movie, uh, Asterix and the Mansion of the Gods. Mm -hmm. I think it's better than this one. Okay. Cool. Um, I like this one a lot. So the idea that one, there's one better is uh, pretty uh, alluring. There's 10 of them, I believe, hmm. uh, of the animated movies. Um, yeah, like going back from the 60s to present day. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> one I found kind of galling, you're talking about the uh, the natives in earlier in the movie. Yep. There's one called Asterix Conquers America. <laughs> oh, boy. And, and there's a sexy... Native princess character. Okay. Named Minnie Hoo-Ha. <sighs> For reals. Oh, boy. Ooh, yeah. Boy. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Oh, and there's live action Asterix movies, too. <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the, the thing I think is fun. I haven't watched but a few scenes from them. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is funniest is the faithful translation of Obelix's pants to live action. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can almost picture it. I can kind of picture it. There was a there was a WWF wrestler named Yokozuna, and as mm. he started to approach eight hundred pounds, you could see his pants just riding up and up and up closer to his nipples. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Do you got anything else to say about this movie? No, it was a good time. All right, I thought it was, it was a good time as well. I quite enjoyed watching this. Um, but now we got to talk about next time and I have set myself up for, I don't know what. In the fact is, I don't really know either because I followed your pattern here. Mm. Okay. So I got a French movie for you. Oh, I've seen scenes, but not the whole movie. Okay. So it'll be new to me. All right. Here we go. All right. I like us to watch Kiriku and the Sorceress. From 1998. I'll give you the spelling of Kriku after. Okay. Um, now, for any celery stalkers that might want to preview this, I'll say that it has a um, common sense media rating of 100%. So that means, like, they say it's okay for families. Mm. But at a glance, this looks to be uh, prolific with nudity. But it's like... National Geographic kind of nudity. Oh. Written and directed yeah. by Michelle Ocelot. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Okay. I hope so. I, well, I hope so. I don't know so. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> it looks... It looks... Unique. Yes, it does. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm... I'm down to give that a shot. So... Right. So... Yeah. Until then, until next week, let us know what you think about the show and tell us some other things to watch. And you can talk to me at DrabSwatch on Twitter. Yeah. And talk to me at AC Matsy. Um, I'll try to do better at watching what you tell me to watch. Now, <laughs> now 
How about a celery stalker slogan from 50 BC? You must admit it's true. Olympus really does wash whiter and leaves your hands soft, ever so soft. Okay, we get the idea. 